The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Mark 14, 32 through 36. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Heather. So did you notice all the political signs around here as you drove in? Like, they're hard to miss. Now, I know this is bad, and I probably shouldn't admit this publicly, but I don't even know what election they're for. I said that in the first service, and my dad was in here, so he came up to me afterwards and said, they're for the primary. So I, I guess I do know now, but I didn't know that just a few moments ago. Because it, it feels like we're always voting for something. I, I, when I drove by those, when they first started appearing a few weeks ago, all of those signs, I drove by them, and I you know, sort of glanced at them while I drove, and I realized I did not recognize one single name on any of those signs. But... At some point soon, I'm supposed to enter a voting booth and cast my ballot for one of those names. So there's a decision I'm supposed to make about some people who I know nothing about. So for those of us who are politically less aware, we find ourselves often in this position where we've got to make a decision on who would be best for a certain office, but we know almost nothing about anyone who's running for that office. So how do you make a good decision if you're not well informed about each candidate? And so sometimes what we find is it's easier simply just not to make a decision at all, to skip that day. Well, the gospel of Mark is calling each of us to make a decision about Jesus. And Mark doesn't want us to be poorly informed about who Jesus is. And so what we've been seeing as we've studied this gospel together is that, is that we see all of these words and works of Jesus to help us understand exactly who he is. Like, all of this knowledge, everything we've studied, all of these events and all of these, these different things that happen, all of it is designed so that we, we get it. This is who Jesus is so that we make a decision, a correct decision about him, which is faith in him. Confidence that he is indeed the messianic king who came from heaven and earth to free his people from slavery to sin and death. Now, the kind of decision that Mark wants us to make is far more important and life-changing than any decision we could possibly make in a voting booth. It's a decision that demands all of us. You can go in that booth and you can check a box and not think about it. That's not this kind of decision. We, we learn that it demands all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. And this is the reason that Mark has spent all of this time and effort recording all of these details about who Jesus is. He makes his identity so clear that we can follow him with just great confidence. Now, these events that we're going to study in Mark 14, they're, they're leading us to Jesus' death on the cross. But they're carefully chosen for two reasons. The first reason is so that we get it. This is who Jesus is. And the second reason is so that we then respond correctly. I will wholeheartedly devote my life to him. So as we study this long chapter, a lot of events this morning, 
These are the two questions that we're trying to answer. Who is Jesus? How will I respond to him? So question number one, who is Jesus? Now we're going to learn a lot of things about him, but we can sort of boil it down to three portraits of Jesus from the Old Testament, from the Messiah that that Jesus fulfills. Here's the first, that Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's a Passover lamb. So the opening verse of, of this chapter, it sets the context of all of these events during the Passover celebration in Jerusalem. Look at verse 1. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so there won't be a riot among the people. Now, the, the Passover celebration in Israel was... Sort of, it's only like a combination between the 4th of July and Easter, just wrapped up into one holiday. There were all of these national implications, but also some deeply spiritual ones as well. So the Passover, it celebrated the birth of the nation of Israel it was, as it was brought out of slavery in Egypt, which is sort of similar to Independence Day. And then it also celebrates the deliverance of, that God brought Um, from the enemies that that tormented his people, sort of like Easter. So there was this annual week-long festival of celebration for what God had done that would culminate in taking the Passover meal together. And so pilgrims from all parts of Israel would, would flock to Jerusalem for this week to join the celebration. And so we need to understand everything that takes place in this chapter sort of within this context of this very festive annual time when everyone's there to celebrate what God had done for his people in the past. Now, as was customary this week, Jesus is feasting with some friends just outside of Jerusalem Something strange happens while he's eating there. A woman enters and she, she, she breaks a, an expensive bottle and pours this perfume all over Jesus. This happens in verses 3 and 4. Now some of those who are sitting at dinner, they, they start to get frustrated. They think it's somewhat ridiculous. Imagine how much money could have been given to the poor, they say in verse 5. Well, Jesus jumps to her defense. So look with me at verse 6. Jesus says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. Now here Jesus affirms ministry to the poor is a good thing. You always have the poor with you and you can do what is good for them whenever you want. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, historically, kings were anointed at the start of their reign. So if you think back to the events in the Old Testament, you have Saul and David and Solomon. They were anointed at the start of their reign as a picture that they are the king. This was what the disciples would have had in mind for Jesus. He's the Messiah. Messiah simply means anointed one. So he's the one who will be anointed as king. So they pictured anointed like King David or or King Saul. So, so, so they're hoping, right, that, that Jesus is going to be, there's going to be some time where he's anointed as king and then he, then he rules over Israel, he, he leads them to defeat Rome. And here's what Jesus understands and he's trying to teach them. Before the Messiah rules, he dies. Because the greatest enemy that they face is not Roman occupation, it is sin and death. And the only way to defeat death is through death itself. And so Jesus is first going to be anointed to lay in a tomb not to sit on a throne. Now, in the Passover celebration, which again is the context for everything that happens here, we understand this, that the death of the lamb precedes deliverance. 
And this is what Jesus is showing them. The death of Jesus precedes deliverance, but the disciples, they just don't, they don't get it yet. One of the disciples, in fact, Judas Iscariot, he leaves the meal. He goes out to find the religious leaders. He knows they hate Jesus and want to kill him. And so he decides to leave because he's going to betray Jesus for the right reward, verses 10 and 11. Well, then the scene shifts. On Thursday, Jesus sends a couple of his disciples in to prepare the Passover feast because he wants to celebrate it with them. And he tells them in verses 12 through 16 sort of exactly what's going to happen. Go here, do this to prepare it. This shows us that that Jesus is not, as, as some critics suggest, caught up in all of these tragic events that culminated in his death, and, and then the disciples sort of wrote this sort of fantastic fable after he died and made him into something he wasn't. This shows us, in fact, that Jesus is taking intentional steps to go to the cross where he will voluntarily offer himself in the place of sinners. Well, as they sit down to eat the Passover meal, Jesus says something that is truly shocking to them. Look at verse 18. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. Now they began to be distressed. Wouldn't you be? And he says, this is who you spent the last three years. He's like, one of you guys. Not from out there, in here. And they say to him, well, surely not I. And he said to them, it's one of the twelve. The one who's dipping bread in the bowl with me, for the Son of Man will go just as is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. I mean, how tragic that someone could walk so closely with Jesus and still betray him. I mean, how could anyone witness all that Jesus has done and still do this? I mean, Judas has seen Jesus reach out with compassion time after time to those who are helpless and needy. He has heard Jesus speak with such wisdom. He has personally experienced the kindness of Jesus over and over. How he could, could he betray Jesus? And look at what it cost him. Jesus says it would have been better for him if he had never even been born. And this is true for all those who hear and see about the kindness and grace of Jesus, yet still reject him. Now Jesus begins the Passover celebration with his disciples. And as he does, he infuses it with new and deeper meaning. So normally the Passover feast was really a time of looking back to what God had done when he saved Israel from Egypt. So Israel had been in captivity for 400 years when God sends Moses to deliver them, right? We probably are all somewhat familiar with that story of Moses leading Israel out of slavery. Well, the night before they were delivered, Moses had told the people, pack up all of your belongings and, and bake some bread, but don't put any yeast or leaven in it because we might not have time for it to, to finish baking then before we have to leave. We, like God's going to deliver us and it's coming soon. We don't have time for the, for the bread to rise. And so they would, they, they would celebrate it this way. The other thing Moses told them was that before they, before they left, they were to kill a lamb and they were to take the blood of the lamb and wipe it on their doorposts. And this was because God was sending destruction on Egypt and he would pass over the houses that were marked in blood. Now Jesus, what he does here is something phenomenal. He, he shows his disciples that those, what they were celebrating the meal wasn't simply looking back to what happened. It was actually looking ahead to what he was just about to do. Look what he says in verse 22. As they're eating, he took the bread. He blessed it and broke it. He gave it to them and said, take it. This is my body. See, Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. And all those who share in my life, share in my life by receiving me. 
It just as this bread that he breaks is unleavened, Jesus is without sin. Just as it's broken in pieces, Jesus is about to be broken in their place. This is a picture of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross in the place of sinners. And then when it's taken and it's eaten, it's this visible picture of faith in him. We, as Jesus' disciples, we receive him fully. Right? We, we rely on him alone for life. I can't live if I don't eat. And we're saying, I can't live if I don't have Jesus. Now look at verse 23. When he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank it from it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. The cup filled with the juice of grapes that have been crushed is a picture of the blood of the lamb spread on the doorposts to mark those who are trusting God to deliver them from death and judgment. But Jesus says this actually is looking ahead to my death on the cross in the place of sinners, that my blood will be poured out to spare you from death and judgment. Hours before Jesus did this, the lambs had been paraded into Jerusalem and taken to the temple. They had been sacrificed on the altar, and hours after, Jesus would be sacrificed on the cross outside of the city. Not only that, Jesus says, but this seals my new covenant with my people, a covenant of everlasting peace that was inaugurated by my death on the cross and it was sealed by the sending of the Spirit. It's an unconditional promise from God to his people that he will remake and restore creation, that he will forgive their sin and he will bring them into his family. Now, brothers and sisters, do you realize that each week when we gather and we celebrate this, we are, we are celebrating the same meal? The same meal. Like we're partaking in it with Jesus and his disciples as we eat the bread and drink the cup. We are remembering together the all-sufficient Savior. We're rejoicing that our sins are forgiven, that we've been adopted into his family. We're receiving through taking this new grace to walk with him the days that lie ahead of us. Let me just say, this is why you should never take Sunday worship as optional. We desperately, each one of us, need the grace that is found with each other at this table. This is also why virtual Sunday worship is a mistake. We need to be together in flesh and blood, hearing real voices, seeing real faces, and eating real bread. We need to be in a real place with real people listening to a real pastor preach. Jesus gives us this reminder each week that he became a real man, lived a real life of obedience, died a real death so that we could receive real forgiveness. There's nothing virtual about what Jesus did. He came in person and he offered his body and blood for us. Now look at this. Jesus ends the supper by looking ahead to the final day when he returns to establish his kingdom and make all things new. Look at verse 25. This is a beautiful, beautiful verse. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Here's what Jesus is saying. I am waiting to feast with you. I'm waiting, Jesus says, to feast with you. I'm waiting with joy for the day when I will eat and drink with you. He's not simply saying that to y'all, though that's true. He's saying it to you, Christian. Do you actually believe that? That Jesus is in heaven, not 
eating the bread and drinking the juice because he's waiting to eat it and drink it with you. I want you to think about that. When you come on a Sunday and life has been chaotic, when you've had a week of abysmal failure, that Jesus is in heaven and he is waiting to feast with you, that when you eat this small piece of bread and you drink this swallow of juice, that this is Jesus reminding you, I am going to feast with you. I'm looking forward, Jesus says, Christian, to feasting with you. If you are a follower of Jesus, in a few moments you will be invited to participate in the Lord's Supper. This is the most expensive meal that you could ever eat because it cost the Son of God his life. But it is free for you. It requires nothing of you. He paid the price. He invites you to receive it as a gift of grace. Jesus is the Passover lamb who died so that we could live with him forever. Let's look at the second Old Testament portrait. Jesus is the struck shepherd. The struck shepherd. So in the next set of verses, Jesus makes just a startling announcement to the disciples. He says, all of you are going to fall away from me tonight. In fact, he ties their failure to a prophecy that was made in the book of Zechariah. Look what Jesus says, verse 27. He said to them, all of you will fall away. Because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So near the end of the book of Zechariah, God is making a promise about a coming Messiah. And he says this Messiah is going to be sort of like David. He's a shepherd king. He will gather all of my people. But then, God says, I will choose a sword that will strike him. And when I strike him, all the sheep will scatter. This is Zechariah 13, verse 7. And Jesus says to his disciples, hey, this prophecy, it's about you and it's about me. And it's happening tonight. That I will be struck down and you will scatter. And much of the rest of the chapter really is just recording how the disciples scatter without a shepherd there to lead them. Now, it shouldn't surprise us which disciple says, well, I, I won't scatter. Right? We would all get this question correct. It was Peter. Peter says, like, well, he does this all the time. I don't know about those guys, but I won't, I won't do this. And Jesus says to him, not only will you scatter, you will before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me, Peter, three different times. He says this in verse 30. Now, Peter and all the disciples don't believe this. And Jesus, I think, teaches them an important lesson for us. Right? They, as the disciples, they're far more confident in their ability to follow Jesus than Jesus is in their ability to follow him. Like, they, they really don't get how weak and powerless they are apart from him. All the scene now shifts to a garden called Gethsemane where Jesus commands his disciples to pray in verse 32. He invites Peter, James, and John, let's go further in the garden and pray with me. Now what happens in this garden helps us better understand how the shepherd will be struck and why the sheep scatter. But I want you to notice how the emotions of Jesus, they're described in such real and raw terms. Verse 33 says, He took Peter, James, and John with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. Jesus is preparing to bear the full weight of God's judgment for all the sins of all his people for all time. He is about to drink in cup 
that drank the full cup of God's righteous wrath on sin. The one striking Jesus is not a Roman executioner. It is his father because he is judging on, in Jesus the full weight of all our sin. And it's this horrifying reality that God is going to strike him and the perfect union they've always experienced will be broken. All of this drives Jesus to this point of great sorrow, even, he says, to death. And so he asks the Father to take this cup away from him if possible, but then he commits himself to obey the Father's will. Look at verse 35. Jesus went a little farther, fell to the ground, prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. After pledging obedience to his father, Jesus turns to find the disciples, what? Sleeping. And so he challenges them, stay awake and pray. Like, don't, he's just, right, this is so much like us. He has just said, you're all going to fall away. And they're like, we won't fall away. And literally they fall asleep. So he says, no, 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 this is, this, pray that that you won't give in to temptation. I know you desire to do what's right, but you don't get how weak you are. So pray. Pray because you're weak. Three times Jesus prays on his own. Three times disciples fall asleep instead of praying. Now Jesus ends his time of prayer. He's ready to meet the one who will betray him. Judas leads a mob of soldiers to arrest Jesus in verse 43. Verses 44 and 45, we see how he has prearranged the signal with the soldiers. When I go up to someone, call him rabbi and kiss him on the cheek, you'll know that this is Jesus. He betrays Jesus with a kiss. Soldiers step forward to arrest Jesus. Now, they could have arrested Jesus at any time. He's been preaching publicly in the temple. They've seen him, yet they're afraid to do it in the light. Right? They're afraid of what the crowds will think, so they do it in the darkness. Now, one disciple draws his sword to fight. We're not told in Mark who it is, but we know. We know from the other Gospels, but we would have known anyway, right? Of course, it's Peter. Jesus forbids it. What happens? Well, what happens is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. All the disciples scatter. Now, one unnamed young man is in such a hurry to get away that when they grab his robe, it says he slips out of it and runs away naked in verses 51 and 52. Now, the identity of this young man is not what's important. Mark doesn't include this detail. But, but here's what's important. This is an allusion to an earlier prophecy from the book of Amos. So in the book of Amos, there's a prophecy about Israel's rebellion and God's judgment. And, and Israel often would, would recognize they're disobeying God, but would think they'd get away with it, Right? It's pretty typical, whether it's a child with parents or us with God, is we can get away with our rebellion. We're, I mean, we're pretty self-sufficient. And so in his promise of judgment for the rebellion, this is what God says. Amos 2 verse 16, even the most courageous of the warriors will flee naked on that day. What do we have happen here? On this day of judgment, all of Jesus' disciples flee They're just as powerless as the warriors in Amos' day. This naked running man is a sign of God's impending judgment on Israel. Well, the chapter ends with an account of Peter's threefold denial of Jesus, verses 66 through 72. Three times in the garden, Jesus commits himself to obeying God's will, even though the cost of doing so is beyond calculation. 
And three times in the courtyard, Peter denies Jesus because he's afraid of the cost. The shepherd will be struck by the sword of God's judgment, and the sheep are scattering. Which leads to the final portrait of Jesus, that he is the reigning son. The reigning son. So, Jesus is arrested. He's brought before the ruling council of Israel called the Sanhedrin in verses 53 through 55. They hold a farce of a trial in order to convict Jesus, and then their hope is to convince the Romans to execute him. Now, they're unable to find any real evidence against Jesus. Of course not. He's sinless. So they manufacture some evidence, but they can't even manufacture convincing evidence, verses 56 through 59. And you can almost picture it. So finally, in exasperation, they think they've worked this out, but they can find nothing that works. And so the high priest turns to Jesus, and he asks him to defend himself. Look at verse 61. But he kept silent and did not answer. Initially, Jesus refuses to answer. In the words of Isaiah the prophet, like a lamb led to the slaughter, like the sheep before her shearers is silent, he does not open his mouth. But he does answer the next question. The priest says, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Verse 62, I am, said Jesus. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This answer demonstrates that Jesus is not just the Passover lamb. He is the son who reigns. Jesus declares his identity here by combining two Old Testament passages. They would have understood them. They would have got them. They would have known what he was quoting. That, that both of them speak about the promised Messiah. So the first, the first one is Psalm 110. So Psalm 110 verse 1 says, This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago, we looked at this quote. Jesus actually quoted this in conversation with the religious leaders, asking the question, why did David call his son his Lord? This is what he quotes from. So Jesus is is pulling this reference back from an earlier conversation just a few days earlier. This is a psalm of power and majesty. This is what the psalm is saying, that God will strike down all of the enemies of the Messiah, and the Messiah is going to sit in the place of honor at God's right hand. So what is Jesus doing? By quoting this psalm, Jesus is warning these religious leaders that if they align themselves against him, they are aligning themselves against God who has promised to strike down all of his enemies. Now the second passage he quotes from is Daniel 7. We actually looked at this last week because he quotes from this in chapter 13. Daniel 7, verse 13, Daniel says, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one, like a son of man, was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. So Jesus identifies himself as the son of man who has received dominion over all created things directly from the Father himself. So to align yourself against Jesus is futile. All dominion, all glory belongs to him. He reigns forever and ever over a kingdom without end. Nothing they do on this night is going to stop Jesus. Now, they don't believe him, but they get what he's saying. They get that he's claiming to be God. Verses 63 and 64. So what do they do? They spit on him. They blindfold him, they beat him, and they ask him mocking questions. 
They demand he tell them who is hitting him. Prophesy, they tell him. Now, he could do it. Just this night, he's prophesied Judas' betrayal, Peter's denial. But he doesn't respond. Jesus stands there unflinching and takes their abuse. Like Jesus could wipe them out with a single thought, but in patient mercy, he endures the torment for us. Jesus is determined to see this through to the end. He is the king over all things, but he is going to take his place as the lamb to be slain. So this chapter primarily answers the question, who is Jesus? Well, I'll tell you who he is. He's the lamb of God who takes upon himself the sin of the world. He is the shepherd those struck who gathers his sheep and cares for them. And he is the son who reigns until all of his enemies are put under his feet. But all of this is here, not just so that we say, oh, well, that's good. It's so that we'll answer this question. How will I respond to Jesus? How will I respond to Jesus? I've seen who he is. Now the choice rests with me. What will I do with what I've learned? Like, no, listen, no one can answer this question for you. Notice it's not we. How will we? I can't answer this question for you. Your spouse can answer it. Your parents can answer it for you. You alone have to answer this question. This is a personal decision. And we're given three possible responses in this chapter. Here's the first response. I want nothing to do with him. I want nothing to do with him. This is the response of the religious leaders. They simply want Jesus gone. They want him off the scene. They no longer want him around. They, from, the, from the very first verse, they've been intent to get rid of him, to eliminate him. But, but just think about this. If Jesus is who he says he is, how are you going to get rid of him? If he is indeed the Son of God who reigns over all things, There's no way to get rid of him. Like all dominion is his. All the world belongs to him. You belong to him. You don't have the option of ignoring him or disposing of him. See, once you understand who Jesus is, this response is the epitome of foolishness. Like you can no more get rid of Jesus than you can get rid of the sun or oxygen. In fact, we're told in the Bible that Jesus upholds the universe with his powerful word. I mean, what happens if you try to ignore or avoid him? This doesn't change the reality that you are accountable to him for how you respond to him. Like, you're setting yourself against the one who sustains your life. As we see with these religious leaders, this is a sad and self-defeating way to live. Let's look at a second response. Here it is. I want him if things will be easy. I want him if things will be easy. Like, this is the disciples' response at this moment. I mean, they say, like, we swear our allegiance to you, Jesus. We will never leave you. Then the mob shows up and they all take off running naked. You know, one of Mark's goals in writing this gospel 
is to show us that we can't accommodate Jesus to what we want. We don't get to remake and reshape Jesus into the Savior we, we want him to be. I mean, this, is, this was sort of the prevailing notion. This is what I want the Messiah to be. This is what I think I need. And as long as he's doing this, oh, I, I want bread. Oh, he's providing bread. Oh, I'd, I'd like to get rid of Rome. Can he do that? Like as, long, like as long as he does what I want him to do and he makes my life sort of successful and happy and prosperous, then this is what I want. But it doesn't work that way. Jesus is who Jesus is. We don't remake him. We don't change him. Here's what we do. We submit to his will and obey his commands. You see, the path Jesus walks is not an easy path. We've seen this as Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and he wrestles with taking on the sin of the world. And so therefore the path that Jesus calls us, his disciples, to walk, I mean, do you think it's going to be easy? I mean, we follow a crucified Savior. Where do you think that path leads? I mean, do you remember what Jesus said a little earlier in the Gospel of Mark? When he says, if anyone wants to save his life, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The path of discipleship is not painless, but it's worth it. I want you to notice the, the statement Jesus makes to the disciples immediately after he tells them they're all going to fall away from him. He says this in verse 28. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Here's what Jesus says. Like the path is hard. It leads to a cross. And on the other side is the resurrection. I'll go ahead of you after I've risen. See, back in the parable of the soils, near the start of the gospel of Mark, when Jesus is describing all the ways people respond to him, he looks at hearts as soils. And he says there's different types of soils, different types of responses to me. He talked about one particular soil that seemed initially to receive the seed of his word and sprout. But it says all these weeds, cares of the world, they, they grew up and they sort of choked what appeared to be that life away and there was no fruit. See, true disciples follow Jesus even when life is hard. I find it really interesting that the Gospel of Mark doesn't end by telling us how the disciples did. I mean, we have to go to another book, the book of Acts, to, to learn that. It doesn't, two more chapters in it, spoiler alert, he doesn't really tell us how the disciples do. We're sort of left with a somewhat lasting picture of them, fearful, afraid, denying Jesus. Why is that? Maybe it's this so that we would read this gospel and we would say, huh, if Peter and James and John all struggled to follow Jesus when it was hard, were all tempted to deny him when it was difficult, would, would I do that? Will I only follow him? when it's going my way, or will I follow him to the end? Will you keep following Jesus when life is hard? That's what it means to be his disciple. Here's the third response. I want him more than anything. I want him more than anything. 
It is not the religious leaders, certainly, that model this response. But it's not even his apostles. It's not the twelve. It's the unnamed woman who treasures Jesus above a year's worth of salary. It's the unnamed woman who takes a family heirloom and cracks it open, breaks it, pours the ointment on Jesus and says, you're worth it. Now, if you've been with us as we've studied Mark, you probably would have figured it would be the unnamed woman. In fact, almost any time in Mark's gospel, it seems, where someone appears and we don't, we're not told their name, they're often an outcast, usually poor, marginalized, powerless. We could almost say like, well, let's see what they do. They probably do the right thing. Why is it that throughout this gospel, it's the unnamed, unimpressive, uncredentialed people who respond correctly to Jesus? They're the ones who just desperately want to be near him. It's not the high and mighty. They reject Jesus. It's the meek and lowly that accept him. And maybe it's because they get it, that Jesus is their only hope. They're not lured into this thinking that they just need a little Jesus added to all the success they have in their life. What's the location where this one woman anoints Jesus? We're told it's in Simon the leper's house. But here's a, here's a problem. Lepers don't have houses. Because if you, you were diagnosed with leprosy, you were sent outside the city. It's, it's so highly contagious and deadly that you no longer get to live in your house. You no longer get to live in your community. You're, you're sent outside the community to a colony, a slum, where you must stay in there until waiting to die. That was life for a leper. Lepers don't have houses. You know who have houses, though? Healed lepers. There was no human cure for leprosy. So what do you know about Simon the leper without being told? That Jesus healed him. Like, this is why we want Jesus more than anything. Only Jesus can heal a leper. Only Jesus reaches out and touches the untouchable. Only Jesus restores the one whose life has been destroyed, who's been cut off and cast out. Only Jesus does that. Do you want Jesus more than anything? Is there anything more important to you than him? All of those signs on the corner with all of those politicians' names on them are all filled with empty promises, Right? You've been around for any length of time, you know that. We'll go, we'll vote for some of them, and almost every time we'll be disappointed as we watch them fail to keep their promises. It seems that the more we learn about them, the more disappointed we become. Can I tell you the opposite is true with Jesus? The more you know him, the more you love him. That he never disappoints, that we, like those first disciples, may fail him, but Jesus never fails us. This gospel of Mark is calling you this morning to respond to what you've heard about Jesus. How are you responding, Jesus? We pray with me? Father, give us wisdom and discernment to see how we're responding to you. 
This is the issue, the issue for us in our lives. Everything rests upon this. Will we reject Jesus? Will we try to accept a, a version of Jesus accommodated to what we desire? Or will we reject all other things to count them as nothing in order to know and love and follow you? I want to give you a few moments just quietly to answer this question. Don't put it off for another time. Don't wait for another day. Like right now, answer this question. How have you, how are you responding to Jesus? So I want to give you a few moments to answer that question before we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.